Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Becky Brown. I'm one of the associate pastors here at First United Methodist Church in Waynesville, North Carolina. You're about to listen to the sermon from worship this week. You can also watch this service online through our YouTube channel. You can just search FUMC Waynesville on YouTube or join us in person at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. every Sunday. Thanks for listening, and we hope this sermon challenges, inspires, and invigorates your faith. May God bless you. Uh, It is so great to be with you all this morning. My name is Kevin Bates, as Becky introduced me earlier. Uh, I am a a pastor out at Way in the Wilderness in the Upper Swannanoa River watershed, which is actually Black Mountain for those of y'all who don't know. And I'm usually used to preaching outside, uh, so having these lights here are pretty cool. So I'll let the sound team know that during the most dramatic parts of my sermon, if you can have those orange lights spinning, that would be fantastic. (laughs) So... This past Friday, I was sitting with my wife and my two kids, and we were having lunch together at Green Sage Cafe, which is in South Asheville. It's kind of like a health food cafe. We had just finished our appointments at our pediatrician with both our kiddos, who are both three and a half and eight weeks, both of them getting shots. And as any parent here knows, (laughs) that usually means a fair share of tears and crying and negotiating with your kids about how many popsicles they can have if they do what they're supposed to, right? (laughs) Though I actually heard from a friend of mine that he took his son to go get his COVID shot, and his son was three years old, and when his son got his COVID shot, he didn't cry, he didn't scream, actually just turned to the nurse and said, hey, you tried to poke a hole in me. (laughs) But my kids, on the other hand, they cried, (laughs) They cried, and they did scream, and because of that, we decided afterwards to go get some lunch and to reward our oldest with her favorite treat in all of the world, french fries. As we sat at Green Sage Cafe, we must have looked like quite a sight. There we sat, sipping pumpkin spice lattes, eating our healthy kale and rice bowls alongside a generous and I mean generous helping, of thick, greasy, hand-cut, Belgian-style french fries from the restaurant next door. All the while, our preschooler was wearing this balloon crown on her head that she got from the french fry shop and was waving to her loyal subjects all around her. I actually was going to bring that balloon crown here this morning, uh, but That was just one more thing that we would end up forgetting because, again, if you have little kids, when my wife comes in with our two kids for the next service, she's going to come in looking like a Sherpa with all the stuff that you have to carry because, you know, little kids, like, do not travel light. Uh, I was actually reading the story uh, of the Exodus story with Moses recently, and Moses was was like, hey, just uh, don't, when you go, just bring sandals on your feet and your staff. And I can imagine every, like, Jewish parent saying, but Moses, what about the pack and play and the rock and play? And, of course, you can't mean that we don't bring the front pack because you've got to have the front pack and, and snacks, lot, lots of snacks, lots of snacks and toys. We've got to have a few toys, too, and, and a, another pair of clothes and, and probably another pair of shoes because— You know, I know we're walking through the desert, Moses, but my kid will find the only mud puddle between here and the Red Sea, and he will jump in it. (laughs) Anyways, I didn't bring the crown. (laughs) 
But as we laughed, and as we ate food, and as we shared good stories together, stories that my preschooler was now telling us about preschool, and we were stories we were sharing about our own time as preschoolers. As we did that on that beautiful fall morning, I remember thinking that there are these moments in life that just seem to deeply resonate. Moments that seem to ground us in in who we are and, and tether us to the people and places that we belong. Moments like this when we feel alive. We feel home. I think we've all been there before. Maybe it was around a campfire as you shared s'mores together with friends and shared songs. Or, or maybe it was around a dinner table with our bellies full of laughter and good food as we retold stories of our cha- favorite childhood memories. It's in spaces like this that we feel seen and, and heard and worthy. And it's here and the sharing of our stories and our life that is lived together, that our souls awaken to this beautiful and ancient truth that we were made for one another. A few years ago, I, I was in seminary, and I took this spiritual autobiography class at Central Prison in Raleigh, where we spent the entire semester learning how to tell our own stories. The class was different than all of my other classes in seminary because half of the students were fellow divinity school students like myself, and the other half were inmates of the prison. Our lives could have hardly been any more different. Half of us were free to walk out after class ended. The other half would spend the next 25 to 50 years in this place. Half of us lived with every advantage in life, the other half, every disadvantage. We had different backgrounds, different educations, different futures. And yet there was something in the telling of our stories, our autobiographies together, that would begin to shape us as one. How was it that there, under the fluorescent lights, And in the middle of those giant concrete walls, how was it that I had that same feeling I felt with with my kiddos this past week? That feeling that we were home. In his book, Between the Listening and the Telling, Mark Iaconelli says that when we listen to one another's stories, it blooms within our body, creating an intimate connection between teller and listener Our heart races, our eyes well up with tears, the belly shakes with laughter. And when we share something we have lived, a joy or a suffering from our lives, that listener is invited into our very being. The stories of our lives are a sort of offering, a kind of confession, an intimate revelation. And when they are received, when they're heard, we find that the story has become a tether that binds us to one another. I've been more and more convinced over the years that we need to become better storytellers as a people, as a society, as a a church. 
We need to learn how to tell our own stories and learn how to receive the stories of those around us. As Maya Angelou once wrote, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story within you. But even as we tell these stories, we must not do so uncritically. Instead, we need to ask ourselves, what are the stories that we've learned? What are the stories that we tell about ourselves and the world around us? What are the stories that we have received that we've come to know as our own? A few days ago, I was talking to my co-minister, who is also named Kevin. I just learned that there's another Kevin up here, so like, we're like the trifecta now. Uh, we were talking, and he was reading this book that was on homesteading, and because we're you know, a church that some people call us like the forest people. Um, because we do that, we do a little bit of homesteading. We have worms and chickens and compost and all sorts of lovely things at our houses. And so we're always reading these books on things like homesteading. Uh, but this book that he read was not just a book about how to live seasonally or how to, you know, grow the best vegetables. Instead, the book was a sort of manifesto holding up a mirror to society and challenging us to see and to confront the many ugly stories that we've come to accept about ourselves and the world around us. Stories of, of mindless consumerism, of redemptive violence, of environmental exploitation, of white supremacy and economic inequality. Stories like, I'm not good enough, and I don't have enough, or I am enough, or stories from my classmates in central prison that, that, that said to them that they were nothing more than the worst mistake that they had ever made. Like a silent cancer, these ugly stories have been killing us from the inside out. And for so long, we've barely noticed. And, and even when we have noticed, the author argues we often try to push back against these stories like, like we're in a, a courtroom, like we're lawyers in a courtroom. We push back with facts and statistics and painstaking analysis. But, he goes on to say, we cannot fight this stuff with data alone. To fight the ugly, fake, and false stories, we have to tell stories that are beautiful and true. In the 32nd chapter of the book of Jeremiah, we find the city of Jerusalem in the final stages of a siege. The city has been surrounded by the Babylonian army, and defeat is almost certain. King Zedekiah of Judah is utterly distraught because he believes that God has now abandoned him. That God has now turned against him for the prophet of God, Jeremiah, has told him that Jerusalem will fall and that the king will be given over into the hands of his enemies. It's actually for this, this prophecy, that the prophet of God is imprisoned by the king of God. <laughs> the prophet of God, imprisoned by the king of God's people, speaking of the impending conquest of God's people and the destruction of the holy city of God. I'm sure Jeremiah must have asked himself, did God really claim a people just to bring them to a fate like this? Did God really leave us out of Egypt just so that we could be brought back into Babylon? Did God really call me as a prophet just for my story to end like this, imprisoned? 
at the end of probably my favorite musical, Hamilton, there's a song that asks, who lives, who dies, who tells your story? In one sense, the song is about how we will remember our past. What will be the stories that we tell of these moments? But in another sense, the song is deeply rooted in the present, asking what stories are defining these moments now. And and, and what stories, how will they lead us? To what future will they draw us? For Jeremiah and the people of the besieged Jerusalem, will their story that they have come to believe about this moment be, be one of fear and one of despair? Will it be one of distrust of outsiders who have overthrown them? Will their story be one of disappointment and loss? Or will it be something else? And to what future will their stories draw them? It's in this moment that God tells Jeremiah, it's time to get into real estate. (laughs) Go buy your cousin's field at Anatoph. Jerusalem is about to fall. The people are about to be killed and enslaved. And Jeremiah is getting into the real estate game, buying up utterly worthless land. So worthless, in fact, because just outside of the city of Jerusalem where Anatoth is, it's already been conquered by the Babylonians. The Babylonians already have that territory. This land is useless. It's absurd. Why go buy this land? Why would God say this? Even Jeremiah thinks, okay, God, this is a little bit strange. And he tells God to God's face, yeah, this is, this is weird. I'm not going to lie. This is weird. But God responds to Jeremiah with a promise, saying that this would not be the end of the story, nor the last word for God's people. God tells Jeremiah that another story is about to be told against the ugly stories of fear and despair and abandonment and loss, a story more true and more beautiful than Jeremiah could ever imagine. And that story wouldn't come from God just trying to convince the people of Israel, but would come from something else. It would come from a beautiful place. God says there will be a different story and that this field at Anatoth would be the sign of a different story. A story of absurd hope in the face of the impossible possibility, declaring that God would once again restore God's people and bring new life. I've always loved this story of Anatoth. I love it not just because it's something that God promises that is beautiful. I love it because it's real. It's, it doesn't just gloss over the hard parts and the broken parts of the story. No, Anatoth exists as a constant reminder of the heartbreak that's about to befall the people of Israel. Its very existence, its very presence would be a reminder that things are not as they should be even as it declared the reality of what one day might be true. You know, I think many people have rightly criticized the church and Christians for failing to take seriously our world's current pain, to take seriously the brokenness around us. Like, 
Like, have you ever been uh, with someone in, in a hospital room when they've received a terrible diagnosis? Or, or have you ever been with someone who's just lost a loved one when some hopefully well-meaning Christian steps in and says, well, you, you know, you can still be happy because they're with God now. As if we want to just hop over the pain and say, well, we're going to sweep the brokenness and the hurt aside and just get to the good stuff. Like my classmates in the prison, we, we don't have to hide our flaws and our brokenness for our stories to be beautiful. To be beautiful, we just need to be honest. There's a beauty in the honesty. It's okay to say the world isn't as it should be, that injustice is real, that divisions are real, that people are hurting right now, and that I don't have it all together. And to say, but here is Anatoth. Here is Anatoth speaking hope into the darkness, telling a story more beautiful and more true than all the other ugly stories. You know, when I think of Anatoth, I, I think of Clarence Jordan, Clarence and Florence Jordan and Koinonia Farm. Have any of y'all ever heard of the story of Koinonia Farm? In 1942, Clarence and Florence set out to Sumter County, Georgia, to try to live out the teachings of Jesus amid poverty and racism in the rural South. As one source wrote, it was here in the midst of segregation and racism that Jordan envisioned a place where blacks and whites could live and work together in the spirit of partnership. Based on a radical call of discipleship, Jordan created this community, this farm, that was committed to racial integration, to nonviolence, a simplified living, the sharing of possessions, and stewardship of land and its resources. Amidst a world that said black and whites should not be together, Amidst a world that said, we must be divided. Amidst a world that says, take all you can. You got to look after yourself. Amidst a world where there was racial and ethnic and economic inequality, there was Koinonia Farm, a place where they shared things in common, where they worked together, where they trusted the vision of God to be true. Quinonia Farm throughout the 1940s and 50s and 60s, it was a place, it was a beautiful story against the ugly and false stories of, of racism and segregation in the rural South. Against the stories of hate and division, Koinonia was this living example, this living story that proclaimed that we are meant not for these stories, but for the story of right relationship with God and one another and the land. You know, it wasn't just enough to say that there's bad things in the world, that there are ugly stories in the world. Instead, the world needed a living example of what is possible. I've come to this realization that facts, analysis, data, they, they rarely change our hearts. I've been working in um, environmental justice for about a decade now, and what I've realized is that there's, there's no amount of telling people what's happening in the world that has convinced someone to change their mind. Data won't do that. Data can't change the ugly stories. The only thing that can change the world 
are beautiful stories about what is possible. As Buckminster Fuller, he's an, he was an architect and systems theorist of Black Mountain College, as he once said, you never change things by only fighting against the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. In other words, to fight against the ugly and fake stories of the world, the ones that we tell ourselves, the ones that are told about ourselves, we must instead become living stories of something more beautiful and more true, stories that will guide us all home. So these last few weeks, I've been really into uh, the Rings of Power. Have any of y'all watched any of the Rings of Power series? It's the, yeah, all right. It's the new Lord of the Rings prequel that kind of sets up the conflict for the entire trilogy series. In the first episode of The Rings of Power, there's this scene with the, with the young elven uh, girl named Galadriel. And she's sitting there. She is folding together this paper boat, this paper ship. While all the other elven children are running around, they come up to her and they say, even you can't think that that thing will float. To which she whispers something to the boat, sets it in the water, and it begins to set sail. As it, as it begins to, f- to go down the stream sailing, the boat opens up into this beautiful swan floating atop the water. One might even say soaring. But in this moment, the other elven children begin to throw rocks at the ship, the little paper ship that she had made, and they laugh and they laugh as they throw these stones, tossing them at the boat until one of them connects. And the ship sinks. As it sinks beneath the water, Galadriel is furious. And so she runs up, and in the scene that's like halfway adorable and halfway uh, silly, she begins to tackle one of the other elven boys, and the, you know, a brawl breaks out until Galadriel's brother, Finrod, comes along, and he pulls the two elven children apart. Later that day, he says to, to his sister, Galadriel, Galadriel, do you know why a ship floats? And a stone cannot, to which she shakes her head. He says, because the stone sees only downward. The darkness of the water is vast and irresistible. The ship feels the darkness as well. Striving moment by moment to master her and to pull her under. But the ship has a secret. For unlike the stone, her gaze is not downward, but up, fixed upon the light that guides her, whispering grander things than the darkness ever knew. The world is full of ugly and false stories, stories that we have sometimes come to accept wholeheartedly about ourselves and the world around us. We've accepted these stories so much that they have shaped and deformed us. They've turned us towards fear and division and despair. But the thing is, we we rarely can shake ourselves out of these stories by facts alone. Whether it's racism or climate change, like I mentioned, few people ever change their lives because of a good argument. 
<laughs> in fact, sometimes we do just the opposite. Confronted by facts that don't fit our story, we simply reject them and double down in our beliefs. You know, if rational arguments could change people's minds, then we wouldn't be this divided as a nation. Instead, to fight these ugly stories, we have to tell stories that are beautiful and true. We need more living stories like Anatoth. We need more stories like Koinonia Farms. Sharing our stories is how we make a home within ourselves and one another. It's how we put together the broken pieces, how we identify and heal the suffering in the world around us. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced that when we learn to tell beautiful and real stories of our lives, that it will tether us to what matters most in this life, to our families, our friends, to the creation, to the hearts we carry, and even to the wondrous mystery of life itself. Our hearts long for the beautiful and true. And the world awaits to hear a story that resonates deeply of home. All our hearts are waiting. The world is waiting. The creation awaits. For that story of the beautiful ancient truth that we are made for one another. And the world, it looks to you to us, to be that story. Amen.